Welcome to Pursuing Justice. We have been talking to staff members at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, a wonderful nonprofit organization that began in 2009, located in Washington, D.C., and their sole purpose is exactly what their name says, to try to secure much less harsh sentencing for children who are caught up in the justice system. Uh, right now in this country, there are approximately 1,465 children still serving life without parole. There were 2,500, but that's a, an extreme sentence, but there are other sentences given to children um, 40 and 50 years. So the campaign is trying to wipe out some of those sentences. And our, our guest um, previously was uh, Preston Ship, who um, does the legal end of things. He was senior policy counsel. But we've been talking to Catherine Jones, another staff member at the campaign, and she is co-director of outreach and partnership development. She's a mentor to members of ICANN, which is, stands for Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network. And we're going to talk some more about what she actually does at the campaign. So welcome back, Catherine. Thank you so much, Harriet. You're welcome. Were you going to say something? No, ma'am. Oh, okay. I thought maybe you had. All right. So the last time you were with us, we talked a great deal about your background. And I encourage listeners to go back and hear um, your interview the last time um, because you had um, an unusual kind of, of childhood. You literally grew up in, in prison. So maybe just a real brief overview uh, for people uh, and then we'll, we'll proceed. What, tell us briefly, um, what happened to you at 13? Um, at the age of 13, um, I became the youngest female um, child ever sent to adult prison for homicide. Um, I was sentenced to 18 years followed by life probation and I served 16 years and eight months of that sentence. Um, I came home at the age of 30 and um, have been involved with the CFSY as an ICANN member um, since a couple months after my release and in the last two years have become a full-time staff member um, now um, helping to lead that network and um, provide them with resources and opportunities to help them transition back into society. Now, how I didn't ask you this before, but how did you learn about the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth? Um, at the time, it's by my role now is the role that Xavier was in when I came on board. And out of the blue, I got a call. I don't even know how he got my contact information um, from Xavier. And he was telling me about um, the ICANN network. And that call came at a time where I felt so isolated and alone that nobody was understanding um, what it was like to be locked up for almost two decades and then come out into this weird society. And I was balancing wanting to be a kid again with wanting to be a 30-year-old woman. And it was like a tightrope. And um, 
Xavier introduced me to ICANN. I went to my first convening a couple of months later and met these people who were just like me. And I seen them wearing these fancy suits and speaking on podiums. And I was like, wow, we can actually make it. Like we have, there's things that we can do that we can be proud of. And so I fell in love with it. And um, at any time they needed me, I, I was on call. I was there. Um, and I have been loyal and dedicated to the CFSY and our, our movement since then. I see. And when was that, that you um, began with the, the campaign? I was an ICANN member since my release in 2015, and I became um, a staff member in January of 2020. Oh, so you're very, very new as a staff member. Yes. Oh, that's great. Um, all right. So I read what your role is, but of course, I don't really understand that. And, and I'd like you to, to be very specific with our listeners as to what exactly were you hired to do and, and what are you doing? Um, I am currently the co-director of outreach and partnership development, but I started off as an ICANN coordinator. And my specific role was to um, create space for the female identified ICANN members and um, to help um, come up with solutions um, or resources to address the unique challenges faced um, by our um, female ICANN members. And um, while that was my role, of course, with an organization that does so much work and has such a small staff, that had um, that those responsibilities grew. And so now I wear many different hats. I not only still lead the ICANN network, but I also um, work in partnership development, work closely with strategic partnerships to use my story to change the narrative in the corporate sector around those impacted um, by the criminal justice system and um, fair chance hiring initiatives to speak with these some of the business owners and CEOs and let them know, bring them proximate to people like me so that we can debunk the myths that we are um, violent animals or someone to be afraid of or inferior and let them recognize that we're your neighbors. Like you could see me in Walmart with my two kids. You would never know what I was in prison for. I would be that mom um, tackling my four-year-old because they're having a fit because I won't give them a piece of candy. So um, once we can humanize ourselves and bring people proximate, um, then they could start understanding um, what it's really like to be directly impacted and also be educated when they when they vote. Um, and so I'm a, a huge part of my job is narrative change to bring people into my world to share my story on public platforms so that um, they can make more informed decisions about the issue. How do you change the mind of a, um, a CEO or someone in a big corporation who may have a, a mindset that's quite negative when it comes to people who are coming out of prison? How do you, how do you get them to think differently? I think one of the, the biggest, um, the, the most important things to do is to give them the correct information. So we noticed that even people that were fair chance hires would make a line and say, we will hire people as long as they were nonviolent offenders, as long as they were first time offenders. When the truth is, those with violent offenses, particularly those 
that were children in committed violent offenses, the recidivism rate is lowest for that correct category of people than anyone else. We have over 800 um, releases, eight, almost I think 873 um, releases. We have almost 200 ICANN members. None of them have returned back to prison for a, violence, a violent offense. And although I think the one that may have, it was like a violation of parole or probation. So when they learn those truths that we are not only not a risk for hire, but we were also some of the most um, underdeveloped, like um, the skill set is high, but they're giving us entry level jobs. So we're a, we're re a pool of um, untapped potential is the word that I'm looking for. And they're going to be your best employees. And the more people we have hiring, the more examples we have. And we have 200 of those examples in the ICANN network. People that have come home, we're leaders in the community. We're um, dedicated to healing a system that has harmed us. And, and some of the most resilient, compassionate people. So when we bring these people forth and says, this is who we are, this is what we've done. And like Brian Steve said, we're not the sum of our greatest mistakes. That is the um, the most important thing we can do. Proximity, proximity, proximity is so important because no C CEO can stand in the room with me and look at me and tell me you don't deserve to be here. Right. That's one of Brian Stevenson's favorite words, proximate, right? Mm -hmm. he, he talks about that all the time. And, and last, uh, this past Sunday, I was listening to 60 Minutes and there was a fascinating uh, segment on StoryCorps, um, which has transitioned into um, something called, um, is it, for, uh, now I've forgotten the name of the, the new one, One Step, I think it's called. And they're pairing people who sit on both sides of the table and talk about um, the things they share rather than how different they are. They are often from very different political parties or you know, philosophies. And they're saying that if you sit down with someone and you don't talk about hot button issues, but talk about what is what you share, how you're alike, um, it's very difficult to hate someone when you're sitting you know, eye to eye, nose to nose. And I, I think that's what you're saying, um, that when they meet people, you're not a statistic, you're, you're a person, and they mm -hmm. can see what you've done with your life. What kinds of, um, of employment um, happens with some of the women uh, in the ICANN network? Are, they, are there men or it's just women? Um, the ICANN network is um, mostly men because it's mostly men that receive these draconian life sentences. Oh. Um, although we do have women, um, the, the numbers of women is drastically smaller um, than the men, um, either um, because they have not come home, but, you know, statistically, there's less of us with life sentences. Mm -hmm. um, so um, right now we have... I have created the Higher I Can initiative where we are um, going beyond the value of directly impacted people for their narrative, for their story, but to show their skill set. And we've created the Higher I Can website on the CFS Web website that highlights I Can members that are seeking employment. We have their bios, their headshots, their resumes, and um, corporations and companies have the opportunity to go on that site 
and um, commit themselves to hiring ICANN members and giving them a shot. And um, we are in the beginning stages of it. Um, it's just launching off to the ground. And um, but in the meantime, we do share resources and we we hear of um, through our different partners of different job openings specifically for directly impacted people. And we provide those opportunities to um, our ICANN network. That's really terrific. Um, I also wanted you to talk about um, women's unique issues while they are incarcerated um, and also um, juveniles' unique issues while they are incarcerated. What what can you say about that from your own experience? I think it's easier, Harriet, for me to start with the children. Sure. Um, simply because, um, well, I've experienced, of course, both, but the the one about being in prison as a child is the one that not only is the most painful to me, but it's the most, um, I think, impactful in sharing with our listeners, because I wondered if people knew how children were treated when they were sent to adult prison. Um, would they make the same decisions about supporting bills that allowed this type of treatment? Because I know that when you're home like now, I get an alert if there's a sexual predator um, within 10 miles of my house. They're not allowed around children. Yet for some reason, when children are, are, commit, are, are um, convicted of a crime, now they're no longer children. They don't deserve those same protections. So now you house them with people who are sexual predators. And um, you use their, um, their label as inmate or, fel or felon to justify that type of treatment. To go into a room at the age of 13 and be told to strip of all of your clothes and bend over and spread your butt cheeks or your vagina and it's one of the most dehumanizing um, things that they do in the penal system, but to do it to a child, especially a child that has already experienced sexual abuse and being violated is something that even now, 23 years later, I remember so vividly. To be placed in an isolation cell, which is where most children are put for protective custody for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and then expect them to, to develop normally socially, to not be defiant or rebellious is just unheard of. It's They have laws against keeping dogs in hot cars, but they will place children. I was in this place called a blacktop and it had a tar roof and it's Florida in the summer and it's over a hundred degrees and it would get so hot that we would put our sheets in the toilet water and lay them on top of us to cool our body temperature down. And in the winter, it's so cold and you get two very thin blankets and you're in there shivering and cannot get warm. And you tell me that any child, no matter what they have done, deserves this, is preposterous to me. It, and it's, it's draconian is what it is, yeah. Yes, and then to transition to women in particular, women are more subjected to sexual abuse and sexual assaults by the guards. And um, the pregnant women in particular, they're not treated any different. They're not given preferential treatment. They still have to sit on their lockers for hours a day. Most of them were being treated for hemorrhoids from having to do so, um, back pain. Um, that I've seen a friend of mine was pregnant 
and they made her use a floor buffer which sits on your lower stomach as it does the floor she miscarried and lost her child um, after they go through the birthing process being separated immediately from their child and brought back to prison without any mechanisms to nurture that bond between the child that's just perpetrating that cycle of now there's an incarcerated parent, this child that does not have the support they need, and now that child statistically is probably going to be in prison. And that's how the cycle keeps going. And the the menstrual cycle and getting the bare minimum of um, pads and tampons and charging a ridiculous amount, like a box of six tampons would cost you $7, and you only get $100 a week. And they would give you panty liners instead of maxi pads and you'd only get 12 or 24 a month. And so if like me, I had issues where I was, you know, a a heavy, I had a heavy menstrual cycle and it wasn't sufficient. Now you're using toilet paper. Now you're using toilet paper to try to create tampons. And so that creates its own health risk. And then now you have some type of infection that you can't get care for. There's no screening for the older women in there for but there actually has to be a problem before, um, and that's still a possibility of whether you're going to get treated for. But there's no screening for these women that have life in prison that um, that don't get the the care they need to prevent illness or um, di- you know di- diabetics that don't get the proper dose of insulin. And once they privatized healthcare and made it contracts, it just got worse. And everything you went to the doctor for it was ibuprofen ibuprofen and Tylenol, and you could be in excruciating pain in your abdomen. You don't get the option to go to the ER and get um, a sonogram on your stomach or an MRI if you had a headache. I had a friend of mine in her 20s that ended up blind because she complained of consistent headaches. And by the time they realized that she had tumor, a tumor behind her eyes, it was the size of a softball. And when they went to remove it, she lost her sight. And had they had you know, seen her prior to this when she first started complaining, it could have been prevented. I've seen women have heart attacks and because of their their policies around not doing mouth to mouth or putting their mouth on an inmate because for some reason, um, God forbid that they're not human, that they're some animal that they should fear getting diseases from, they sit there and let them have a heart attack and die. What if they would have received medical care quick enough, they would have lived. And that's the reality of being incarcerated um, as a woman or as a child, well, even men. Um, But the one thing that is so different between the men and the women is that men are afforded opportunities to master skills that give them the opportunity to be entrepreneurs and uh, when they come home or skills that are high paying, high level jobs, whether it's electrician, whether it's carpentry, but those aren't provided for women. And in fact, women get the worst budget cuts because we only had what for women's prison for the 120 male prisons in Florida. So when they do Mm. budget cuts, the women are the one that gets the the brunt end of it. And so they're limited to what they consider feminine trades, um, learning how to sew, cosmetology and secretary training, which are the very jobs that are the hardest to get into on reentry because of your background. Right. So, so job opportunities or preparation in prison is, is absolute bare minimum for, for women is what you're saying. Absolutely. What, what could they 
what could they add um, to help women be more employable when they get out? Oh, the one thing that they could is to do more skill-based jobs. Um, because of the fact that background checks do prevent people from getting employed, give them a skill set that allows them to come out and start their own business. Uh-huh. Teach, teach them how to create their own business plan. Teach them how to use their finances. Teach them about credit. The things that um, reentry don't doesn't teach prior to um, people getting out is exactly the things we need. It's so draconian, the things that they teach you, like writing out a resume or you know, interview skills. And most of that stuff is obsolete in this new tech age. Mm-hmm. We, I didn't learn how to upload a resume online. Right. And you can't walk into, you know, they had told us to walk into businesses and hand them our resumes. And that's not even a thing anymore. No, it's and not. So give people up-to-date information. Yeah, very, very good. I, I wanted to go back for a moment to uh, women who are pregnant and say that there are only eight prisons that I know of that allow women to keep their newborns for a, a certain amount of time, some a year and some a year and a half. But out of all the prisons in the country, just eight allow that baby to stay with their mother. And those early months and, and maybe year, year and a half are so critical. But uh, why we don't do that, I have no idea. No mm-hmm. idea. So Florida uh, does not allow that at all. No, no, they do not allow that. And they don't offer the type of support you need mentally after being separated from your child. I've seen those women be put on suicide watch Mm -hmm. after their child's ripped out of their arms. I've seen women come back and say they would let them call the family to come get the baby. They automatically put the child in in foster care. I see. And then they have to go through a legal process to get um, their family members custody. Wow. Um, so back to your role um, at the campaign, do you now ever have to go into prison uh, as part of your job? No, we have no requirement to go and visit the women before release, but we do have a letter writing program at the campaign. We, oh. res- we respond to every letter that we receive. We send them cards for the holidays. We send newsletters annually to keep them a form on legislative um, progress or stalls um, that's going on. And we also have through our regional correctors and our outreach team, which I'm a part of, we have a database and we know when they're getting parole light, when they come in home and we connect with them um, once they're home to offer our support, even if they don't become an ICANN member, just to let them know that they have a team here. We understand what you're going through. We've gone through it and we just want to help you. Oh, that's, and so needed. So we're, we've been talking about re-entry and what I haven't asked you is what was it like for you given how very young you were and the world that you left behind at 13? What was your re-entry into, back into society like? Oh, Harriet, so many different levels. There was the aspect of like reintegrating into a family that I hadn't been with for almost 17 years and um, like not knowing my place. Um, my mother said it <laughs> so well. She said, I don't know if you're a 13 year old that wants her mommy or if you're a 30 year old that wants her independence. And the truth was, I didn't know that. Um, the technology was um, daunting. 
Um, I had never had a smartphone. I didn't know how to operate a smartphone. I didn't know anything about apps. Um, even applying for college and trying to get my FAFSA, like you, I didn't know anything about that. Um, my mother told me, don't go into debt. <laughs> and so I didn't get any credit cards and then went to get my first car. And they were like, you don't have credit. That's like bad credit. And I was like, geez, I can't win. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so it to say it was hard um, is an understatement. But um, with the help of my mentors, um, my CFSY support team, my family, um, I was able to to figure it out. And I'm still figuring it out. I've been home six years and I still don't have it figured out. But I feel closer to it than I ever had before. Six years is not a very long time. It really isn't, given the time you were uh, in prison. So I, I think you've done remarkably, remarkably well. well we, we are coming to the end of our, our time together. And I think you have really um, shine, been able to shine a light on what it's been like uh, in prison, um, what it's been like out of prison and what the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth is doing to help those like you um, make it out here. So I thank you for all your your openness and your willing to sh willingness to share your story with us. Um, it's been wonderful to have you on Pursuing Justice, Catherine. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Harriet. You're very, very welcome. And I hope our listeners uh, you know, listen to all, all the podcasts about the campaign and maybe go on their website and choose to support the work that they're doing. Uh, once again, the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth is, is the uh, group's name. So thank you again for listening. And uh, this has been Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm Harriet Hendel, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.